LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I'm the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the December 2022 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and it's a pleasure to once again be joined by Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments, both in the United States and abroad, affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's Law Notes podcast episode is an ode to winter weddings as we're doing a deep dive on nationwide marriage equality updates. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's a delight to be here and to be with you, Shane. So let's start off with the biggest news item of the week, Respect for Marriage Act, signed on December 13th. Take us through what the bill does and doesn't do for our community. Okay, and uh, we should mention that normally our monthly podcast focuses on events of the prior month and important things happened in November. The point is, that uh, the House of Representatives passed the original version of the Respect for Marriage Act last year, much earlier in the year, I believe in the spring. Uh, And then it goes over to the Senate. And the big issue in the Senate was, would it be possible to actually get a vote on the floor of the Senate? Because there would certainly be a majority for the bill if, uh, if it was put to a vote, because all the Democrats would vote for it and Vice President Harris would cast the tie-breaking vote if all the Republicans voted against, but there was always some hope that there would be a handful of Republicans who would support it, because there are a handful of Republican senators who have a long history of being pro-marriage equality. For example, Senator Portman of Ohio, who became pro-marriage equality when his son came out, (laughs) for example, Uh, and there are others. The issue was, can you get past the filibuster rule? And under the filibuster rule that the Senate operates under, in order to cut off debate on a bill and actually bring it to the floor, it has to have a cloture vote, C-L-O-T-U-R-E, which requires 60 senators. And there are only 50 Democrats. And Vice President Harris doesn't get to vote on this because it's not about breaking a tie, it's about getting to 60. So they had to find at least 10 Republican senators who were willing to vote to cut off debate. They didn't have to be willing to vote necessarily for the bill on the merits, but they had to be willing to cut off debate. The strategy question was, do we try to put up the bill before the midterm elections, thereby putting everyone on record and using that as an election issue? Or do we wait till after the elections for the lame duck Congress when no one is busy running for re-election and perhaps, perhaps... Uh, enough Republican senators could be persuaded in that less pressurized situation to vote for cloture. And ultimately, the decision was to hold up and do it after the election. And then the Democrats kept the Senate at the election, but they didn't get 60 seats. Uh, So we still needed the Republicans. And there was a group, uh, a bipartisan group of senators sat down with the House bill and basically asked the question, what has to be done to this bill to attract enough Republican votes to bring it to the floor on the merits, that is to invoke cloture. And they negotiated an amendment to the bill, a few amendments to the bill, but the most significant amendment to the bill was the religious exemption amendment. And here's where we get into the guts of the bill. 
The bill does a few things as it was originally passed by the House. It repeals the Defense of Marriage Act of 1996, which means that marriage is no longer to be defined for all purposes under federal law as the union of one man and one woman. That's eliminated. It substitutes for it a definition of marriage that is the union of two people. And that means that polygamous marriages will not be recognized by the United States. That is, more than two people will not be recognized by the federal government as a marriage, even if a state were to authorize it, which seems bizarrely unlikely. <laughs> but they, they decided to pin that down in the Senate by actually adding a provision saying that uh, polygamous marriages will not be recognized by the United States. But then, having gotten rid of the Defense of Marriage Act definition, there's the other provision of the Defense of Marriage Act that's also being repealed that said that states were not required to give full faith and credit to same-sex marriages performed in other states. And in order to take care of that, they put in to the bill uh, in the House that marriages that were legal where they were performed had to be recognized by other states whether they were performed in other states or whether they were performed in uh, other countries. For example, cat marriages from Canada or Mexico, where we have same-sex marriage now throughout the country, many countries in Europe, uh, a few other places around the world where they have same-sex marriages. They will be recognized for purposes of federal law, but they also will have to be recognized by states, even those states who decide not to allow the performance of same-sex marriages in their state. They'll still have to recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states. What the bill didn't do was to require all states to allow same-sex couples to marry. And the reason for that is Congress doesn't have any specific authority to dictate that issue. Domestic relations law is state law in our federalism. That's that's the division. The only way in which the federal government gets involved is deciding which marriages it's going to recognize. And a, a friend of mine posted a question to me by email, uh, a close observer of this kind of stuff, and said, where does Congress get authority to tell states which marriages they can recognize and not recognize? And the answer is they get it from the full faith and credit clause, which itself says that Congress may prescribe the effect of the application of the full faith and credit clause. So presumably that includes telling states that this is something that you, to which you have to give full faith and credit. Now, that's, there's a good argument that that will hold up, but who knows? I mean, if a state declines to recognize same-sex marriages from other states, it'll go up through the court system and we'll get an answer to the Supreme Court, which has rendered very few decisions interpreting the full faith and credit clause. So there, there's lots of open questions there. But the bipartisan group came to a compromise between what the real anti-marriage equality hardliners would prefer and what the Democrats were willing to sign on to and enough Republicans to make it fly. And that is to say, what do we do with religious objectors to same-sex marriage? And the compromise they worked out was that nonprofit religious organizations would not be required to perform or provide goods or services for same-sex marriages. But that's nonprofit religious organizations. What the hardliners would like is that any business could refuse to recognize same-sex marriages and provide goods and services for same-sex marriages. They were looking for that. 
and they didn't get it. The bill limits this to, uh, it says, consistent with the First Amendment to the Constitution, nonprofit religious organizations, including churches, mosques, synagogues, temples, non-denominational ministries, interdenominational and ecumenical organizations, mission organizations, faith-based social agencies, religious educational institutions, and nonprofit entities whose principal purpose is to study, practice, or advancement of religion, and any employee of such an organization shall not be required to provide services, accommodations, advantages, facilities, goods, or privileges for the solemnization or celebration of a marriage. Any refusal under this subsection to provide such services, accommodations, advantages, facilities, goods, or privileges shall not create any civil claim or cause of action. So basically, they're insulating religious organizations. And I don't think this would necessarily apply to hospitals. It would certainly apply to educational institutions. Hospitals are not entities whose principal purpose is to study, practice, or advance in a religion. And uh, as you'll see when you read the January issue of Law Notes, because we have a new case that came out from the Eighth Circuit just early in December, religious hospitals may be able to avoid having to having to deal with people on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, I mean, there, there's a battle there under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But for purposes of this law, for purposes of marriage, what we're basically talking about are churches and religiously affiliated educational institutions, nonprofits, social service agencies. And we're talking about foster care. We're, we're talking about a result that is in accord with the Supreme Court's First Amendment ruling in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. But this is for purposes of federal law, not state law. And there we would be uh, looking at constitutional issues when it comes to state law. This is, it's, it's limited, but it's what Congress could do and what was politically feasible in case the Obergefell decision were to be overruled in the future. And is that likely to happen? Probably not, but possibly. Justice Thomas called for a reconsideration of Obergefell and his concurring opinion in the Dobbs abortion decision from June. And it's possible he'd get a few other votes on that. But he was speaking only for himself. No one else signed his concurrence. And Justice Alito, in his opinion for the court in that case, said that no one should question the continuing validity of Obergefell and Lawrence versus Texas or Loving versus Virginia uh, because of the Dobbs decision. But uh, we've heard that that story before. Uh, Justice Kennedy in Lawrence versus Texas said, no one should think that we're ruling on same-sex marriage here. And in his dissent, Justice Scalia said, don't you believe it. They'll be back. <laughs> They'll be back. He said the same thing in the Windsor case when the court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, Section 3. But uh, and, and Scalia said, they, they claim that they're not deciding whether the states have to let marriages take place. He said, don't you believe it? So certainly a historic moment. I don't want to underplay that. This this is something I would never have imagined as a teenager that we would have a celebration at the White House with some of the most prominent activists in the community codifying parts of marriage equality on a federal level. But it sounds like a real mixed bag here. Definitely a loss for the polyamorous community. And do you have any concerns about how this might intersect with what we heard earlier this month with the 303 creative oral arguments? 
I don't think so. I think uh, 303 Creative is going to be a First Amendment free speech decision. The court didn't grant cert on the religious uh, freedom uh, question that was in the cert petition. So uh, assuming they don't jump their skis and decide to decide the case on, on a ground that wasn't argued, and the court has done that on rare occasions. I don't think there are, there are five votes to do that on this court. But uh, you can never tell. The Supreme Court has become somewhat unpredictable. We have a few swing justices. I mean, they're very conservative, but they're justices that occasionally vote with the more liberal justices. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, on occasion. Sometimes Justice Kavanaugh. Sometimes Justice Gorsuch, but I don't think we would get him on this issue. Sometimes even Justice Barrett. You, you can never really predict for some of these people who, as they say, swing both ways on occasion. So we'll have to see. But I think it is a major uh, development for uh, Congress to have passed and the president to have signed a law specifically and explicitly recognizing the validity of same-sex marriages for all purposes of federal law. That's a big deal. Repealing the Defense of Marriage Act, even though it was unenforceable under the uh, Windsor decision, repealing it was a big deal. So we can celebrate that as a major victory. And we certainly need victories this year, as you know. So thank you for bringing us up to date on everything that happened this week with the Respect for Marriage Act. And I look forward to continuing to discuss the outcome of this legislation. So next, I think we're going back to one of our favorite places to discuss on the podcast, Waco, Texas, to look at what was happening with a judge who was refusing to perform same-sex marriages. Okay, this is the saga of Diane Hensley, who's a justice of the peace in Waco, Texas. Uh, In 2017, a local newspaper reported that she was refusing to marry same-sex couples. If same-sex couples applied to uh, her office uh, to arrange for a wedding ceremony, they were handed a list of other justices of the peace or judges who were willing to conduct them and and informed that Judge Hensley had religious objections and therefore would not do it. So after the newspaper article, the State Commission on Judicial Conduct decided to inquire. I mean, they weren't going to take action based on the article against her, but they were going to inquire to her. She said that, you know, is this true? Is the article true? And if so, how does that square with the uh, judicial uh, cabins? And will you clarify for us what you're doing? Uh, She responded that the state's Religious Freedom Restoration Act protected her. Texas is one of many states that passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which forbids the state from imposing a substantial burden on free exercise of religion unless the state has a compelling interest. The commission decided to issue a public warning to her that if she didn't cease from her practice of refusing to conduct same-sex marriages, she might be subject to greater discipline. She had an option to appeal that ruling. Instead of appealing it, she filed a lawsuit against the commission. She claimed they were violating her constitutional rights, that their action was ultra-virus, that is beyond their capacity. And she asked for a declaratory judgment that the warning was invalid. And a trial judge in uh, in Waco ruled against her. The, uh, The commission said, well, you can't sue us. We have sovereign immunity. It's like suing a court. You can't sue the court. We have sovereign immunity. On top of that, 
it's not ultra-virus. It's certainly within our sphere to enforce the judicial canons of conduct. And we don't even have to address her First Amendment argument, but we don't think there's much to it. And the trial judge granted the commission's motion where they were just challenging the jurisdiction of the court to even do anything in the case. So Judge Hensley appealed that ruling to the Texas Court of Appeals. And the Texas Court of Appeals issued its decision on November 3rd. 2022, just within the time frame covered by this issue of law notes. And they agreed that the commission had jurisdiction to decide this. It was not ultra-various, that the uh, commission enjoyed sovereign immunity, that the uh, claims of the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act were not valid. And the judge, Judge Baker, who wrote for the Court of Appeals, wrote, rather than pursue an appeal of the commission's determination, an avenue established by the legislature to obtain review of commission decisions and set forth in Texas Government Code Section 33.034, Hensley filed a proceeding. She said it's an impermissible collateral attack on the decision of the commission. And the Declaratory Judgment Act does not waive the sovereign immunity of the commission. So... It wasn't ultra-various. He said, whether the commission was right or wrong is irrelevant. This case is not properly before us. One judge concurred. She said that the court shouldn't have said anything except we don't have jurisdiction. The court doesn't have jurisdiction. You can't file this action. But this, this opinion reiterates a point when you get past the, uh, the technicalities and look at the substance. It gets past the point that we've seen in other cases around the country. A handful of people who wouldn't issue marriage licenses wouldn't perform weddings. We saw what happened in many different cases. And in every case, it was held these are public officials. Their personal religious views cannot excuse them performing the acts of their office. We have separation of church and state in this country. So they have religious freedom to believe what they want, to practice their religion. But when they're acting as a government official, they have to apply the law impartially. And after the Supreme Court issued the Obergefell decision, within days, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which had been sitting on a marriage equality case from Texas, issued its decision holding, we are bound by the Obergefell decision, Texas must allow same-sex couples to marry. And without a whole lot of protest or uproar, same-sex uh, couples began to marry in Texas. And so, you know, we have these cases pop up time to time, but these judges, justices of the peace, court clerks, county clerks, whoever they are, they always lose. So marriage equality is saved again. It's incredible to think how far back that case goes, that it took this long to come up with a decision. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, she started doing this in 2016, but it didn't surface in the press till 2017. And once it surfaced in the press, it came to the attention of the commission. So then the commission, they had a hearing at which she showed up and she argued her First Amendment case, but they didn't like her First Amendment case. They said, you know, as a public official, you have to apply the law. You can't raise your personal religious objections. Uh, I mean, if, if you can't perform marriages for same-sex couples, you should resign from your position as a justice of the peace because justice of the peace under Texas law are authorized to perform weddings. So you got to do it. Sounds clear cut to me. Yeah. Well, we're staying in the Midwest, but we're moving to a neighboring circuit. And I think this case is interesting because sometimes it's easy to forget about the less publicized pieces of marriage equality, such as 
full access to marriage equality when one or more parties is a disabled person, or in this case, when you have one or more parties who is actually an incarcerated person. So please take us through this particular set of facts. Okay. This case involves uh, an inmate in Oklahoma known as Marilyn Monet Porter. (laughs) She's a transgender woman who was incarcerated in Oklahoma. And Porter, to use uh, the name that she prefers, wanted to marry another inmate. Part of the problem is she wanted to marry an inmate who was incarcerated in a different prison and with whom she was having difficulty maintaining communications. They wouldn't put her on the communication list, the inmate. In fact, the uh, gender of the other inmate is not specified in the opinion. Uh, the court didn't get into a lot of facts, but she she wanted to get the forms for a marriage license and a ceremony for her marriage to her fiance. And the staff said, well, we've already sent you the forms. She said, why didn't you send me the forms? I requested. They said, we sent you the forms. She said, I never got them. So she filed another grievance. And it seems in the Oklahoma prison system, if you file two grievances on the same subject, you will be found to have abused the grievance process. And suddenly restrictions apply. If you want to file a grievance more than once after you've abused the process, you have to accompany your grievance with an affidavit notarized on each page, listing all prior grievances in the last 12 months, their grievance number, their disposition, the appeal of any, and the final decision. She tried to submit this. I mean, she had appealed the denial of her grievances, and she said there was no result. She got one page notified, notarized on this new grievance, but one, one of the grievances had incomplete information. She said, well, they wouldn't give me access to the grievance log so that I could get all the information. And she said, if you want me to notarize every page, I'll notarize every page. But they, they made her go back to step one. Uh, she had also filed a grievance asking for a list of LGBTQ-friendly prison chaplains so she could find someone to conduct the wedding. Uh, she requested permission to correspond with her fiancé, but she had similar problems about uh, attaching an odorized list because they wouldn't give her access to the prison log. Finally, out of desperation, she filed suit, and she lost. And the Tenth Circuit affirmed a summary judgment dismissal on grounds that she had not exhausted her remedies because she had not appealed. She said, but I tried to appeal, but they didn't respond. Well, it's a total catch-22. And as Bill Rold, who covers our prison litigation notes, he he actually, he read this opinion and he was just so outraged, he decided to write a full article about it, which you can see in the December issue of Law Notes. He said, you know, there, there are so many problems with this opinion. They claimed that she missed the filing deadline for grievances because the Oklahoma prison system does not use the mailbox rule. It's not when you put the grievance into the system, it's when it's received. And they claim they didn't receive her grievances within the deadline. But she she swore that she put them into the system. It was they weren't delivered. And under the Prison Litigation Reform Act, equitable tolling may be available in exhaustion cases. Uh, But the Tenth Circuit, although they've recognized that in some cases, not in other cases, the Tenth Circuit was just not willing to accommodate this inmate. So, you know, how do inmates get to marry? 
we have a constitutional decision, relatively old constitutional decision, Turner versus Safley, which held that prisoners have a right to marry. 1987. But Turner versus Safley involved an inmate who wanted to marry someone who wasn't an inmate, someone who was on his visitor list. And it was a heterosexual marriage. And the prison said, well, we just don't allow prisoners to marry. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, you can't do that. There's a fundamental right to marry, even if someone is incarcerated. But this case involves two inmates who are incarcerated in different prisons. So it, it presents different issues. And we don't know how far Turner versus Safley would be applied. But Rold seemed to think here, and he, he goes through chapter and verse and cites lots of cases on every point, that the Tenth Circuit opinion is inconsistent with precedent, is inconsistent with the Prison Litigation Reform Act, and is unfair to the prisoner. So unfortunately, that's that's uh, what the Tenth Circuit said in that case. So we have a negative marriage equality case. And as you pointed out, there are certain people for whom uh, the marriage equality right seems to be elusive. People with disabilities, prisoners, and what happens to prisoners doesn't get much public attention. That's why we've tried law notes to, uh, to provide coverage of what's happening with LGBTQ prisoners and prisoners with HIV, include a section in every issue. But we will try to keep doing that, although Bill Rold, our editor for that, uh, has said after 10 years of doing that, he's ready to step down. So if any listeners to this podcast are really interested in prison litigation and would like to take up the oar of working on that section of law notes, we would love to hear from you. Contact the LGBT Bar Association. I would like to echo that plug. Well, I look forward to hearing if there's any further updates on Ms. Porter's case. I hope there's a path for her to be able to move forward. Well, we'll see. I think the 10th Circuit is the end of the line for her, unless she gets a cert petition or gets an on-bank review. Very frustrating. So I know our last case today brings us back home, so to speak, right here to New York, and is a case that Legal has been heavily involved with as well. Can you take us through what happened with a particular couple who was seeking wedding garments and was turned down? Okay, this is a case in New York, a way, and it's not really a wedding vendor case. It's just a vendor case. This is a situation of uh, a lesbian couple, Tiffany Allen and Angel Lane who uh, at the time of this case lived in St. Louis, Missouri, that they now reside in Texas, our favorite location, uh, where you can now get a marriage uh, from Judge Hensley, perhaps, <laughs> if you're in Waco. But uh, at any event, they, uh, they got engaged in January 2018. And after searching for over a year for just the right wedding outfit, Angel eventually found a white jumpsuit online that met her criteria for sale by a New York-based designer, Dominique Galbraith, through her company, D. Auxley NYC LLC. So uh, Tiffany wrote to her, said that uh, her fiancé had fallen in love with the garment designed by Dominique and would like to purchase it. On June 19, 2019, Galbraith responded, first by explaining the payment procedure, but then denying Tiffany the sale stating, I wouldn't be able to make a piece for a same-sex wedding. It goes against my faith in Christ. And we all know what Christ said about same-sex marriage. Nothing. But, you know, that it would shake her faith in Christ 
if she made a dress that she knew, in, in this case, a jumper, a white jumper suit, <laughs> that she knew would be used in a wedding, this would make her complicit somehow in making this wedding happen. And uh, she claimed it would violate her First Amendment rights, et cetera, et cetera. The, uh, Alan and Lane found someone else to sell them a white jumper suit. <laughs> they went ahead and they had the wedding, but they filed a complaint with the New York State Division of Human Rights. And the New York State Division of Human Rights said, you can't do this. They, they, they went to a hearing before an administrative law judge by the name of Thomas S. Protano, the New York State Division. And he ruled that under the New York executive law, uh, section 296, which is our human rights law, this business is a public accommodation. It sells goods to the public. It may not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. And this is discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, she raised First Amendment claims, and they said, too bad. Our human rights law is a law of general application, religiously neutral on its face. You are not going to succeed on a First Amendment claim. Now, she was arguing that the New York human rights law is not a neutral law of general application. And what was she relying on eventually? She was relying on Justice Alito's dissent at the Yeshiva University uh, application for a stay in the YU Pride Alliance case. You may recall, and I think we've discussed this case before on the podcast, that the student, gay students, LGBTQ students at Yeshiva University wanted to have a recognized student club in the undergraduate college, and they were denied. And they sued under the New York City human rights law and they lost before a trial judge. The case is on appeal to the appellate division. But at the meanwhile, they wanted to stay so they wouldn't have to recognize the club pending the appeal, and they were denied a stay. And they ultimately asked the U.S. Supreme Court for a stay, and the court turned them down. But Justice Alito, for himself and four members of the court, dissented from that decision in an opinion saying this is clearly a violation of the First Amendment rights of Yeshiva University. But that's a dissent. Galbraith is, is, she's basing her case on a dissenting opinion, and not even a dissenting opinion in a merits case at the Supreme Court, a dissenting opinion from a denial of a stay on what is sometimes called the shadow docket. <laughs> that is, it wasn't a fully briefed and argued case. It was an application by one party for a stay, and the other party responded uh, negatively to the application, and the majority of the court denied it. And the majority of the court issued like a one-paragraph opinion explaining that uh, Yeshiva had not exhausted its state law remedies. It was premature for them to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene. So even if theoretically Yeshiva would have won, there's a big difference between Yeshiva University, the world's largest and most prestigious Jewish university, and a dress designer who was a for-profit business, not a not-for-profit religious institution. And New York does not have a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. She also argued that uh, the commission had no jurisdiction in the case because the parties didn't live in New York. She said uh, that uh, the, the injury, if any, in this case occurred in St. Louis, where this couple lived, not in New York. And the, the commission, well, uh, Judge Pertano said, well, just a minute, you're a business, you're in New York, you're selling in New York, your denial to sell them the dress took place in New York. 
therefore we have jurisdiction. No word yet on whether she is trying to appeal this uh, to the full commission. Uh, an ALJ decision that is not appealed to the full commission becomes the decision of the commission. So we'll have to keep you posted on that since Brett Figluski, uh, the legal director of Legal, is co-counsel on the case. We will certainly find out if there are more developments in the case. But uh, it's interesting because, you know, you know, these marriage vendor cases have mainly been cases where they're claiming that they, there was some kind of artistic or creative or expressive action involved, like the 303 creative case about uh, a wedding website. There's case involving wedding videographer, cases involving wedding photographers, cases involving florists and cake makers and stuff. And in all those cases, they're claiming, well, there's some kind of expressive component. If we were supplying the goods and services that would be expressing our approval of the marriage, which uh, we have religious objections to. But here's someone who was selling an already designed dress. They weren't asking her to design a new outfit for this wedding. They saw something advertised on her website. It's already made. They're just asking her to execute one for them. Mm, I see, because so, you had mentioned that this is really a vendor case as opposed is, to a wedding vendor. So you're yeah. saying that you could have worn that jumpsuit to anything. Who's to say? Yeah. The jumpsuit wasn't necessarily designed to be worn by a, a groom or a bride at a wedding. In fact, I think it would only be worn by the woman. But we have a two-woman wedding here. And I don't think that both of them were going to wear the white jumpsuit. So it's just Angel. Maybe maybe her wife was going to wear a tuxedo. I don't know. You know, there are different fashions in uh, same-sex marriage weddings. But uh, that's a case that we'll uh, keep uh, looking at. Under the order proposed by administrative law judge, Tiffany and Angel were awarded $5,000 in compensation for emotional distress. And the respondent was required to pay $20,000 in civil fines and penalties. So if she wants to appeal to the commission, up to the commission to decide whether to affirm the ALJ's uh, decision, which is a proposed order. The ALJ issues a proposed order, which becomes final if it's not appealed. So we'll see what happens on that. We'll, we'll try to update you if we have news next month. Well, a very exciting initial victory, and I don't want to undersell that point. And of course, our thanks to Cooley LLP for co-counseling on this important victory. And, and yes, of course, especially with our fabulous legal director, Brett Figluski, at the helm, we will be keeping everyone up to speed on any updates in the case. Great. We've talked about, I guess you could say, something old, something new, something borrowed. We didn't get quite get to something blue, but I'm wondering if you have something of note for us. I have something of note, and it's not about a marriage case. It's about the uh, vexing issue of pronouns and how they are used by courts. This, this case is discussed in the December issue of Law Notes under the Civil Litigation Notes for Michigan. Uh, the Michigan Supreme Court denied an application for leave to appeal the conviction on child sexual abuse charges, whose direct appeal to the Intermediate Court of Appeals had resulted in affirmance of the trial verdict at a 10 to 20 year sentence. Now, the interesting thing is at the time, that uh, the indictment was brought against Gobrick. Gobrick was presenting as a man. But uh, between the time of the conviction and the appeal, Gobrick transitioned, or at least has begun the transition process and now identifies as a woman. The court's opinion does not mention a new name 
But the uh, Court of Appeal was advised by counsel that uh, Gobrick should be referred to by neutral pronouns. Neutral pronouns, please, don't refer to Gobrick as he or her. And the Court of Appeals, in its decision affirming the conviction, dropped a footnote, a lengthy footnote, explaining that they were uh, acceding to the request and throughout the opinion they used neutral pronouns. Now, this really ticked off one member of the three-member panel, Judge Boonstra. And Judge Boonstra said he filed a concurring opinion. I mean, the majority, it was just a one-sentence affirmance. It said, uh, we don't think that this appeal presents questions that should be addressed by the court at this time. Judge Boonstra files a concurrence at which he raves on at length about this ridiculousness of referring to the appellant in this case as other than he, and says that uh, the court should not detract from the clarity of its opinions to, quote, conform to a particular litigant's predilections. And he states, I decline to join in the insanity that has apparently now reached the courts. All right, so the case goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, after this one sentence, you know, we don't think that this case, this appeal presents questions that the court should address at this time, but that was unsatisfactory to two members of the court. They felt it was important to respond to what Judge Boonstra had said. Justice Elizabeth Welch, joined by Chief Justice McCormick, wrote a concurring opinion. They agree that the case shouldn't be heard by the Supreme Court, but they wanted to address the Court of Appeals' use of gender-neutral pronouns in the majority opinion after the defendant requested to be identified by using the pronoun they. And she wrote to refute Judge Boonstra's contention that this was insanity by explaining that the English language evolves over time. And she said, while there might be instances where adoption of a novel change in the English lexicon could cause confusion, this was not such a situation. The Court of Appeals majority provided a detailed explanation in a footnote as to how and why it was using a gentle neutral pronoun in its opinion. The Court of Appeals simple use of a footnote and a gender neutral pronoun demonstrates that words matter and that a small change to an opinion, even if unrelated to the merits, can go a long way toward ensuring our courts are viewed as open and fair to all who appear before them. So, uh, you know, a little little battle among the appellate judges in Michigan over the use of pronouns. Uh, so Judge Boonstra has been lectured to by two judges of the state Supreme Court. We'll see what happens if this issue ever rises again in a panel on which uh, he's sitting. But I think it was, it was uh, interesting that the Chief Justice and another member of the court felt that it was important to address this. And Justice Welsh, I, I looked her up, and she's a very recent member of the court. She was very recently seated on the court. And evidently, this just struck her. We can't just let this pass, uh, that, that the uh, reports of the Michigan courts now have this diatribe by, by Judge Boonstra as part of the record in this case. We have to uh, counter that. We are seeing more and more judicial ethics opinions, court opinions, articles, bench cards addressing litigant pronouns and court user pronouns, which would be a fascinating conversation for another, really a full-length podcast episode. But thank you for bringing us this case as an of note this month. You're most welcome. 
it really struck me when I read it. Absolutely. Well, I think this is our last podcast of the year. Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. Thanks to you, we reached over 200,000 lifetime downloads this year. Wishing everyone a safe and happy holiday season. And please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.